Merry Christmas. Uh, you know, that was pathetic. <laughs> Let's do that again. Merry Christmas. Yeah, there we go. There we go. You know, Katie's absolutely right. It really is a privilege that we dare not take for granted when we can gather together like this and worship. I was talking to my three-year-old granddaughter this morning early before I came to church, and I said, Eliza, today we get to go uh, to church, and she kind of looked at me. Now, her parents, my daughter and her husband, are, are missionaries in Asia, in a totally closed, 100% Muslim country. And I realized uh, that Eliza has hardly ever been to church. It's a privilege that we can gather together in Jesus' name and honor him. And we are in this series, as you see on the walls, we've entitled Peace on Earth. Peace on Earth. I'm really excited uh, about today, about right now, because I love you, and I want you to know, and I want you to experience the peace, this life-changing peace that God offers us in Jesus Christ. I want you to experience that this Christmas 2014. But as we begin, rather than explaining that and on packing that on, on the front end, what I want to do is illustrate it. So I want you to watch this video with me that uh, we put together a few weeks ago about a couple here, right here at Wheaton Bible Church. Let's watch this. I was told it would be a great idea if I wrote a goodbye letter to my children and to my wife. to sit down and put all your thoughts down in a letter to your children and to your wife and know that that's something that they'll keep. It was a very emotional time. Since what I have is very rare and not diagnosed very much, um, no one caught it. Wayne's life is going to be much shorter than we had hoped. So the reality for my daughters is that they might not have their dad to be grandpa. And that is sad. That is a real sadness for me as his spouse. I will be alone. I will be a younger widow than uh, I ever imagined. First, it was surreal to her. You know, it's like, this doesn't happen to other people, and this, you know, I can't believe that it's happening. But she goes, uh, when she looked at the stage, she goes, I don't have grief, I don't have anger, I just have peace. And she was like, I want you to know that's not uncaring, because uh, I care a great deal, and I'm going to miss you, but I know you're going to be in a better place. And, um, but I just have peace that the Holy Spirit's given me about this whole situation. And I was like, I feel the same way. A peace came about us almost immediately. And I, I just know it was the culmination of decades of being in God's word and knowing and looking for his peace. Our time on earth is like the blink of an eye. Compared to the time that we will spend in eternity with Jesus, you can't compare it. 
So it's okay. I know that when I'm going to go is in God's hands. And so I look uh, for every day for opportunities to try to witness. We all need to be reaching out to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our siblings. But I probably won't know uh, what effect they'll have on people, but that's okay if I can plant some seeds. That would be true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understanding. And always acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. That's what I want to leave. When Wayne and Patty first came and sat with me in my office and unpacked their story, I was amazed. There's no fear, no panic. No self-pity. And as I listen to them, what they desire is to lift up Jesus Christ, that others might know this peace on earth that they have found and they are experiencing. It was remarkable, uh, just remarkable. And as I uh, watch them interact with each other and notice the poise and the, the calmness in their, their demeanor, I realized that here was a couple sitting with me in my office that had discovered the secret to life. The secret to peace and contentment. Paul talks about it in the New Testament when he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And now, Wayne and Patty are fleshing it. Fleshing it out, living it out. There is no gift under any tree anywhere in the world that is more valuable, more important, uh, more liberating, more life-changing, more satisfying than the divine gift of peace, peace on earth. And so today, what I want to do is I want to look at what is this peace. I want to unpack that some. And then I want to talk about how we can experience it. Because we happen to believe the Bible is God's word, we're going to look at a couple different biblical passages to understand what God has to say about this subject. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. And let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. If you're grabbing a Bible in front of you, that's around page 1010, 1020. This is just a wonderful, wonderful passage. We're going to have some fun uh, with this. So here we go, Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Now this is just outside. It's really kind of probably in between Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the, the beautiful hills there, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Now suddenly... 
a great company of the heavenly hosts that his angels appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, that is glory to God in heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor or his grace rests. Wonderful passage. Let's put this last verse that we just read, verse 14, up on the screen behind me. I want you to keep it up there because we're going to talk about it. You see, of all the Bible passages we read at Christmas, this section in Luke is the most famous. And of all the verses in this section, verse 14 is the most familiar. And of all the words in verse 14, this one word, peace, is arguably the most significant, certainly the most central. And it is why we have this statement on our walls, peace on earth. Peace on earth, the angels announce. Now, because there's such a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about this word peace, and frankly, when we look at this, usually we aren't thinking the same way the angels are thinking. Because there's such misunderstanding, I want to talk as we move into this about what this peace the angels are announcing is not. First, we must understand that it is not international or world or political peace. I mean, after all, the last century, uh, the 20th century, historians tell us was the bloodiest century in the last 2,000 years. So if when the angels announce peace on earth, they're referring to some sort of political international peace, then they would be wrong. Uh, our centuries are increasingly bloody. But we know that's not what they're talking about because if you go a little later in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 21 where Jesus is prophesying, looking to the future in the Olivet Discourse, we call it, uh, Jesus says uh, nations, uh, uh, countries will increasingly have conflict, turmoil, and tension. And it will not diminish as history unfolds, but it will actually accelerate or intensify up to his second coming. So when the angels announce this peace on earth, they're not referring to international political peace. We would like that, but that's not this announcement. Nor is this announcement a, a peace in the sense of relational harmony. Peace isn't relational harmony here. As a matter of fact, look at these striking words from Luke chapter 12. Just two verses. Let's look at these. Jesus is speaking, and Jesus said, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. Uh, we don't read this verse very much at Christmas. I, I tell you, but division, they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother-in-law, or mother, and you can read the rest. What Jesus is talking about here is the cost of following him. And if some of you come from a, a non-Christian home, non-Christian background, like I do, what Jesus is saying is when you come to Christ and you live for Christ and you begin to follow Christ, uh, people even in your family, sometimes especially in your families, will turn against you. I've been there. Uh, but it's not you, it's Jesus. Now, yes, in many situations, relationships, Jesus brings harmony. I mean, think of the alcoholic husband who comes to Christ. 
But in other cases, often in many cases, uh, Jesus brings division. And he tells us that. He prepares the disciples for that in Luke chapter 12. I mean, just act, ask the Iraqi refugees here in our church that have come to Christ about family conflict. I just talked to one mother after the first service about it. Third, peace here is not, it is not a problem-free life. We would like it to be. I was 19 years old. I was a brand new Christian. I knew enough to be dangerous. I frankly was dangerous. And I came home for a couple weeks for the summer um, before I took off for someplace else. And I was uh, raising some cash, getting some spending money by cutting the grass of some neighbors. And one day it was a hot, humid uh, Indiana summer day. And I went over and got the neighbor's lawnmower out and it would not start. And I've been cutting their grass for a couple of years. The lawnmower uh, just would not start. And I pulled and I pulled and I got hotter and hotter. And I could not get that thing to start. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a brand new Christian. Jesus loves me. I didn't sign up for this. Uh, when you come to Christ, doesn't that mean everything's going to work out? And, and suddenly in that moment, this little, little situation uh, became a, a metaphor for me about life. And I was, I got to tell you, I was really mad. So I took a baseball bat and I just smashed that lawnmower. Not really. But I wanted to. What I learned that day is following Jesus does not mean your lawnmower is always going to start. Right? Following Jesus doesn't mean everything's always going to work out. Your lawnmower's always going to start. Important lesson for a 19-year-old who's impatient. Uh, following Jesus doesn't mean everything's always going to be good. Uh, the New Testament tells us God works all things together for good. Doesn't tell us everything is going to be good. Jesus Christ did not live a problem-free life. You and I won't either. You'll be way ahead if you understand that. When we read, though, Peace on Earth, unconsciously, the first thing that comes to our mind is, oh, man, I'd like an easy life. So, the angels aren't announcing world peace, international peace. They are not talking about relationship peace. They're not talking about a, a, a peaceful life. What in the world are they talking about? What they're talking about is spiritual peace. This announcement is about peace with God. It's about something vertical, not something horizontal. It's about the ending of hostility, alienation, estrangement from God through the advent that is the birth of the Son of God, which would culminate in the death of God. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So peace here. It isn't so much a reference to the birth of Christ, but rather what the birth of Christ would usher in, what it would make possible, and that is the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So peace on earth is the forgiveness of sins. Now what I want to do is I want to illustrate this biblically, then I want to unpack it and talk about what it means, and then we'll move on. So let's go back one chapter to chapter 1 and verse 76. Here we're in the middle of what's called Zechariah's song. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner, the prophet, 
uh, before Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist has just been born, and so Zechariah is making a prophecy about John the Baptist and Jesus. And so he says in verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. That's a reference to John the Baptist. Now he begins to talk about Jesus. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Look at what he says in verse 77 about Jesus. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is all prophetic. Jesus hasn't even been born. That won't happen until the next chapter. Now skip down to the very last line. Verse 79, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. So here in the chapter preceding this angel's announcement about peace on earth, Zechariah's prophecy ties the forgiveness of sins to peace or peace to the forgiveness of sins. Peace is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And frankly, as we go back into the Old Testament and we read Old Testament messianic prophecy, this incredible supernatural prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, and we go to Isaiah 53, for example, uh, the prophecy of, of all prophecies about Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we read 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Look at verse 5, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. But he, that is Jesus, was pierced. Now notice it's in the past tense. That's a literary device called prophetic certainty. The prophecy which will be in the future is so certain, the authors write it in the past tense. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here we have it. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Punishment. Peace. So here we are in this famous Isaiah prophecy. And what does Isaiah say? The Messiah would come, but he's not going to reign immediately as the king. Actually, he's going to die as a suffering servant, as a substitute for our sins. And what would be the result? The result will be peace. Jesus Christ would die a death he didn't deserve to die to give us peace, a peace and a life we don't deserve. It's... The forgiveness of sins. So not surprisingly, after the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, and the death of Christ took place in about 30 or 33 A.D., and there's incredible historical evidence that Jesus Christ lived and, and, and died, and the Gospels are a part of that, but not uh, just exclusive. After Jesus died, and the New Testament writers begin to explain and unpack this, Look at what the Apostle Paul says. Chris read this earlier, but look, let me put it back up. Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That would be Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making, here it is, peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have a peace problem. Humanity has a peace problem. We have a peace void, a peace vacuum, a peace deficit. The world is peace starved. Frankly, every single person in this room is peace starved. We're all peace starved. But peace is not a calm you conjure up. It is not a mood you manufacture with candles. 
peace, a peace on earth, the angels are announcing, is a gift you receive, a gift that comes from God. It's not something you do, it's something God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when we read the word peace, we tend to think of easy rest, quiet. And the angel's announcement here is nothing about that. It's about the turmoil of God putting his son to death on the cross in our place for our sins. It isn't something peace, therefore this peace isn't something we initiate, it's something God has initiated. It isn't a feeling, it isn't subjective, it was an event that took place 2,000 years ago in history, and the history is really strong when Jesus Christ was crucified for a sin. Now, those are the biblical passages. I want you to see Luke 1, I want you to see Isaiah 53, I want you to see the New Testament side, Colossians 1. Now i got to ask the question, well, what does this mean? Well, it means several things. It means that the angels are announcing something that isn't primarily subjective. Again, it's not a feeling. It's not something that comes from within. What the angels are announcing, this peace on earth, is objective. It's absolute, it's permanent, it's eternal. It's just as absolute and uh, objective and as eternal as the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore what they're announcing isn't something we achieve, it's uh, something we receive. And notice we receive it here and now. It's peace on earth. You can't receive it later. You can't receive it after you die. You must receive it here, now. Peace on earth. That option isn't available. And what this means, this angel's announcement that we so often get so wrong, we sort of water down to good feelings, this makes Christianity unique among all religions in the world. Because what do religions tell us? Religions tell us that, uh, you know, the spiritual life is a function of working harder, trying to be better, trying to be more moral, trying to be good. And if you have a good day, you feel better in your standing with God. If you have a bad day, you feel bad about your standing with God. But the angel's announcement says, forget that. This peace is something God will do for us when he slaughters his son on the cross. Wow. And the New Testament goes on to tell us that the moment you believe in Jesus, the moment you come to Jesus, the moment you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this hostility between you and God is over, and it's over forever, and you are completely and totally forgiven. You are completely and totally accepted. You are righteous in God's sight, and you are just as precious 10 seconds after you come to Christ in God's sight as you will be 5 million years from now. That's the peace on earth. It's not something subjective. It's an act in history. It's a forgiveness of sins. And this, again, is not something you can put off. It's peace on earth. And you must receive it now. You must receive it on earth. All other forms of peace, relational peace, world peace, inner peace, a, a life of peace, flow from this objective, absolute peace, the initiative God took in putting his son to death on the cross for our sins. Here, here's what this means. 
It means there's only two types of people in the world. Two types of people. Those that are hoping uh, uh, for world peace, inner peace, a, a peaceful life, without going through the adjective peace the angels are announcing in Jesus Christ. In other words, there are people that are trying to find peace in creation. You know, a, a, a better job, a um, better car, you know, marriage isn't so good right now, so I'm going to go find a better wife. I mean, that stuff goes on all the time. Uh, we're looking for peace, but we're looking for it in creation. Uh, that's the first type, the main category of people on this planet. The second type are, are people that say, you know, it, it's not going to work to find ultimate peace in creation. I'm going to the creator. And these are people that in the second category that have come to Christ, that have received Christ, that have been born again. And, and they are sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing in letting this gospel peace lead them. So the good news of the gospel, the good news that the angels are announcing, these words on the wall, is that peace is a person. Peace is Jesus who paid the price for our peace through his own self-sacrifice. This divine atonement that means we have been reconciled with God through the blood of the Son. Boy, do I want you to understand that. Boy, do I want you to get this. Now I want to go on and ask the question, how do we experience this peace? Uh, how do we do that? And so what I want you to do is turn to another passage. It's about 100 pages ahead in the New Testament to Romans chapter 5. Uh, this is an incredible passage on the blessings, the beauty, the benefits of salvation, of, of knowing Christ, all the benefits for those who turn to Christ. And the we reason we're looking at this passage this morning, and Chris read it a few minutes ago, is the very first thing Paul says about coming to Christ is we experience peace. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace, there it is, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now we have a remarkable statement in verse 3. Not only so, in other words, is this peace, this grace, this salvation so incredible, Incredible, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, uh, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because our hope isn't rooted in our circumstances, it's not rooted in anything horizontal, it's rooted in the work of God in Jesus Christ. And the hope doesn't disappoint. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's an experiential thing whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the, what does it say? Ungodly. Okay, note that. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in this. And while we were still, what does it say? Sinners. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's 
enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, there are two keys here to experiencing this peace that the angels announced 2,000 years ago. And the first is admitting you need it. And continuing to understand that you need it each and every day of your life. You see, the reason most people don't have peace is, is because they don't think they are at war with God. Uh, forgive me, if some of you are going to need to forgive me for saying this, but it sort of reminds me of the Chicago Bears. We don't have a problem. That's what we've been hearing for the last couple months. You know, everything's fine. What? And the point I want to make is most of us are like the Chicago Bears management. Uh, there's a word for it. It's the word denial. We live in denial. But look in contrast to the language the Apostle Paul uses in verse 6. He describes humanity. He describes you and me, each and every one of us as God, ungodly. In verse 8, he uses the word sinner. Sin is missing the mark, falling short, overstepping divine boundaries. And, and then the clincher, the strongest word, is in verse 10. He uses the word enemies. We are enemies of God before we come to Christ. In other words, the fundamental human problem isn't ignorance. So God did not send an educator. It isn't a lack of science. God did not send a scientist. It isn't a lack of motivation. God didn't send a motivator. Our, the fundamental human problem is sin. It's hostility with God. It's being an enemy of God. So God sent a Savior who would die to reconcile us to the very God we've offended. Here's a story others have told. I love it. Years ago, the famous atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, was debating David Frost about the existence of God on David Frost's TV show. And he was defending the existence of God, but he was no match for her superior intellect. And he was losing. So at one point, he turns to the TV audience and he says, Well, all those of you that believe in the existence of God, raise your hand. And most of the hands in that TV audience that day, this is some few decades back, went up. And so he kind of looked at her, Madeline Murray O'Hare, with a kind of a look of triumph. See? And she, in that moment, missed an incredible opportunity. Because she could have said, hey, hey, let me, uh, let me ask the audience uh, uh, some other question. And, and she could have asked, hey, hey, keep your hands up if you believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, keep your hands up. How, how many of you believe in the God who revealed himself in the book of Exodus that put the entire Egyptian army to death in the Red Sea? Or how many of you believe in the, the God of the Old Testament who, who came down on the Ark of the Covenant and when uh, Uzzah reached out to 
stabilized the ark, God struck him dead. Or how many of you, keep your hands up, believe in the God who revealed himself to the book of Job and said, Job, I'm not going to explain to you why all these horrible things have happened to you. I just want you to trust in me because of who I am. Hold your hand up if, if you believe in that God. And by then, most of the hands would have dropped. But she didn't do that. Now, why do I mention that? Because most of us believe in a God we make in our own image. A God that is soft. A a, a God without any hard edges. A a, a God, if you will, that's spineless. You you see, we don't want to believe in a God of such extreme grace that we can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. And the only thing we can bring to the table is humility, brokenness, and confession. We don't want to believe in a God of such extreme holiness that every single word, thought, and deed of our entire lives, every sinful word, sinful thought, sinful deed has to be punished. We don't want to believe in a God of such extreme sovereignty who sits in the throne of heaven and rules over all, knows every hair on our head, controls every affair in the universe, We want a God in our own image. We want a soft God. And so what that means, what that means is that we don't see ourselves as enemies of God because we've fashioned a small God in our own image. And we don't see ourselves hostile to the God of the Bible because we don't believe in the God of the Bible. Or or, or let me change it a little. We look around and see all the terrible things happening in, in, in the world, and what do we do? We hold it against God. God, where in the world are you? Instead of understanding this is precisely why God sent his son into the world to experience such horrific, terrible things upon himself. Or we look at the things that are going on in our own lives, the pain, the suffering, the the brokenness, the the dysfunction. And, And we get mad of God instead of understanding that God hates it so much. He sent Jesus Christ to the cross to rescue us from it. And we turn all this around. And I've said this before, but men and women, you students, you're going to be miles ahead of the game if you understand you have a small brain. And lots of anger. And a fair amount of arrogance. And you're arrogant enough to think, give me enough time, give me the right circumstances, give me enough money, give me this, give me that, and I'll find peace. And when you read those words of the angel's announcement, you think peace is something internal, and it's not. It's something external that God does through Jesus Christ. It's the forgiveness of sins. But the first step to experiencing this peace is to understand we are enemies of God and to admit it and to keep admitting it each and every day of your life. That is admitting your sin. The second 
and I'll conclude with this, is to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. So look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice that the word faith is used. Uh, we, we have been justified, Paul says, through faith. And then the word faith is used again in, in, in verse 2. Peace, in other words, isn't a function of what you do. It isn't, it isn't a function of how pretty your house looks at Christmas or how big your bonus is at the end of the year or how well behaved your kids are or, or finding just this right present or getting uh, just this right gift. Peace isn't a function of something you, you do. It's a function of what you believe. Faith. It's a vertical thing. It's not a horizontal thing. Peace is a gift you receive by faith on the heels of admitting your need. Now we need to uh, understand that this uh, New Testament concept of faith isn't just mere intellectual assent. Uh, this isn't saying, hey, I, I, I believe God exists. Like we say, I, I believe George, George Washington was a president. It's not like saying, uh, take this chair. Biblical faith isn't merely saying, I believe this chair exists. I believe Jesus exists. And why is that? Well, the book of James tells us that the demons believe and shudder. They're on their way to hell, and they have intellectual assent. They know God exists. Their biblical faith, the kind of faith talked about in Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, isn't believing the chair exists. It's depending upon the chair. It's depending upon Jesus. It's sitting in the chair. It's depending upon Jesus Christ, who was born, who lived, who died, who was raised from the dead, depending upon him to save you from your sins. It's the difference between believing it exists and depending upon him to save you. And look what happens when you exercise that kind of dependence according to verse 1. Do you see verse 1 in Romans chapter 5? God credits the perfect record of Jesus Christ to your account and he declares you righteous in God's sight. That's what this word justified means. In verse 2, he, he transfers you trans, transfers you and transforms you from the realm of condemnation and law and, and judgment to the realm of grace. You live in grace. And then, according to verses 3, 4, and 5, you have the potential to be just like Wayne and Patty. You'll rejoice in your sufferings. And then if it's as if Paul here anticipates, okay, if we live in peace, how is it that we don't always have peace, and how is it that we suffer? And Paul says, man, you rejoice in your suffering because you know peace isn't a function of your circumstances. It isn't a function of something you accomplish. It's something that God has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ, and you can take anything. Anything. Because you know God paid the bill for your sin on the cross. So peace is a person. Peace is Jesus. And I want you, if you have never done so, to come to Jesus and accept him, receive him as your Lord and Savior, that you might live a life of peace. And for those of you that have, 
let this peace, this wonder of this grace, this realm of grace that you live in dominate your thoughts and your minds and your hearts this Christmas season and all the way through the years to come. This is a promise. That's a privilege. Peace on earth. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your grace, what you have given us in your Son, for all that is ours. We pray, God, as, as we come to you now and worship, that you would speak and you would speak and you would uh, allow us to take these truths deep into our hearts and our minds that we might worship you. In Jesus' name.